Welcome back to the Manchester United podcast. You're about to hear part two of our extended chat with Steve Koppel. If you missed part one, do go back and listen to that though. If you've already done that, welcome back to Steve Koppel. So at this point, did you feel like your life had changed because you're now an FA Cup winner? You've finally finished university. You're scoring goals and playing regularly for Manchester United. And Um, England. Yeah, and England. Well, probably not at that stage. It was the next year. 77, I think November 77, I got my first, my debut for England. I thought when I'd finished university, training by myself all the time, I thought, right, full-time training, this is going to be, you know, the year of couple. Couple is going to take over the world. I'm going to be so fit. I'm going to spend so much time, my touch, beating players, trying to get quicker. I'm going to work so hard. And if I can relate to you, a week with Doc, we'd play on the Saturday, we'd win. He'd say, uh, oh, boys, you've worked hard today. See you Thursday. I'd go, what? I'm a full-time professional footballer. No, no, you've worked hard enough. Doc's big thing was always, the most important part of training is rest. So... I've been used to training every day by myself. So he'd say, I'll see you Thursday. I would train by myself. I'd just go to the field at the back of my house, kick a ball against the wall. Come in Thursday, I'm thinking, this is going to be a hell of a session. We'd come in, warm up, five aside, 20 minutes, or until Doc's team was winning. As <laughs> soon as his team were winning, <laughs> that's enough, boys. You've worked hard enough today. Thinking, 20 minutes. This is my working week. It's going to be big tomorrow, Friday, you know, before the game. We go in Friday and Doc would say, you put some effort in this week, boys. Just have a bath and go home. So my whole training week would be 20 minutes, five aside on a Thursday. But you would be knocking the doors down. The dressing room on a Saturday, quite often him and Tommy Cavana would say, shut the door, the boys are fizzing, we can't let this go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Only open the door at three o'clock. And again, those were the days where there was no 40-minute warm-up. You know, a five to three. Like Lou McCarty had watched a 2.45 at Kempton in the players' lounge. He'd walk <laughs> in, get changed, and then straight out, you'd do a couple of little sprints on the pitch, and man, here we go. And on the Saturday, we would be burst into play, and more often than not, we'd win. You know, the culture was just incredible. The only oh, other team who worked like that were Liverpool. And I later found out this was all derived from the great Preston team of the 30s, 40s. Tom Finney, Tommy Doherty, Bill Shankly. It, the style of football was the way they played. Hit the gullies, get the ball wide, get crosses in. The style of play was based on that. Two significant managers... And the fitness was very much, most other teams, you know, we'd hear stories of what Howard Wilkinson was doing at Leeds, you know, they'd be training two sessions a day, five days a week kind of thing. And, you know, we'd be watching telly and crossroads and all this business. And we're thinking, there's no logic to it, but it worked. Yeah. Amazing. What are you thinking? It's just incredible. Yeah. That you just train once a week and you, you play for Manchester United, but that's the way it was. Well, it, it wasn't every week, obviously, no, no. But, but at certain did, did times you, of the year... Did you find the other lads also train as well? No, no, I don't think so. No? No. They just... 
I think Lou would. Lou yeah. is very, very diligent about his fitness, but I would imagine the other boys. And um, you know, it's just a mentality we all had. You know, when we we came in for training, like it was serious training, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't what anyone would expect. What What was your routine like? Just for comparison. No, no. I mean, we'd be in every day and ten thirty till twelve, an hour and a half. Sometimes it'd. On a Friday, kiddo would cut it short because you'd be kicking 10 bells of crap out of each other because you're just chomping at the bit for the game on the Saturday. But Gaffer never, ever gave off more than two days, ever. So, would you ever, or did you ever bring that into any of your teams as you as a manager? No, 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 not as a manager. I always like to see my, even the day after a game, I would yeah. say, I would say, come in for a bath and a rub down or whatever, but I would be very um, aware that in my well, I never, when I was coaching, I never allowed slide tackling in training. Right. Because, you know, for me, training was a time when you wanted to express your skill set and not be, frightened of being hammered from behind or somebody slide tackling. I never, ever allowed slide tackling. And my mentality was that you can only ever do damage on a Friday. Mm -hmm. So physically on a Friday, sometimes I would just say to my players, we would have a team meeting where we would set up. Thursday would be, when I was coaching, Thursday would be on the pitch, setting up to play the opposition on Saturday. And then Friday would be a, a video session. I, I, I think I was, if not the first, certainly one of the first two or three managers to um, do video analysis of the opposition, the old VHS, uh, beta max kind of thing. I'd somehow get tapes of whatever team we were playing, mm. analyze the way they played, the key performers, what I would call the red shirt players, and then we'd have a, a video meeting on a Friday and that would be the core of the session and certainly not allowed to do anything of any f physical exertion on a Friday before the game on a Saturday. So they were earned to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the years, I'm convinced what I did was more or less right because I never had many injuries in training, mm -hmm. very rarely. Did you say red chair players? Red shirt. Oh, red shirt players. Yeah. I, I, even now I, I look at games and you see the key performers. And in American football, the quarterbacks always wear a red shirt and you're not allowed to touch them. But when you're analysing opposition teams, there are certain key performers who make everything else happen. And I used to call them red shirt players. And I used to say to my teams, whenever the red shirt players get the ball, it's not the closest player to him who gets on the toes, but it's the whole team because this fellow's capable of pinging a 40 yard or something like that. So whenever a red shirt player got the ball, they all knew. Everybody who was on the, the red shirt player during your time here? Oh, I'm sure there was a number yeah. of them. Well, we, we, we didn't really have, I don't think one massively dominant player who, you know, if the opposition stopped him, they would stop us. Again, we played formulaic football. You know, everything was down the channel, down the gullies. And we had two centre forwards, Stuart Pearce and Jimmy Greenough, who would who were great at receiving the ball down the channel. As soon as they got the ball, I'd set off. The full back had set off. The midfield player on that side had set off. So 
that player then would have two or three options, mm. lay it back to somebody else. And as soon as he got the ball again, that would set Trigger, another chain yeah, reaction yeah. and there'd be another two or three players. But the core of it was get the ball forward and wide, get crosses in. Do you think and which I think is the Manchester United way, going back to Samat, you know, it's get the ball out wide, get crosses in. And I still think that is what a lot of the crowds like to see. You know, fundamentally, yeah. <laughs> um, there are four ways of scoring. Set pieces, the number one hit of all time and forevermore will be 30, 40 odd percent of goals come from set pieces. So going back to my, you're not allowed to slide tackle. Yeah. If you don't give away fouls, then you don't have to defend that many set pieces. So for me, that was critical. And uh, outside of... Uh, um, um, set pieces you know crosses are right up there regaining possession is the number two so again press win the ball back high up the pitch you create scoring opportunities that's number two number three is crosses and from crosses you know again you get regaining possessions and number four is sort of interplay or over the top yeah. so there are four ways of scoring and obviously four ways of stopping goals so football is a simple game as I was just going to ask that. Do you think it's too, like, yeah. and I have heard Lou McCarry saying that to myself not that long ago. These people talking about presses and diamonds these yeah. days, you were all effectively doing the same thing that just wasn't labelled. Well, it was just like, everybody get up there, get at them. <laughs> I, go, I go to games now and inevitably at halftime or at the end of the match, you're speaking to people and, and they all say, oh, you know, of course, football's different now, isn't it? And I'm thinking, well, why is it different? You're still trying to score a goal. Yeah. Still, yeah, nothing's still changed. To, no. Nothing's changed. Like one ball, two but goals. But now it is clouded with analysts. You know, everybody in the television now has got a voice. They've got one of those machines that moves players left, right and centre. And you can blind people with words. And the object of the game, you know, ultimately, again, I always feel if your object is to get a 1v1 as high up the field as possible. And if you can create those 1v1 situations as high up the field as possible, often enough, you've got a better than even chance of, yeah. of winning a game. And, you know, again, the, the, the tic-a-tac style, which was being introduced from Spain, you know, 20 years now, is... Whenever I hear a young manager say, we try to play football the right way, I think you're not going to last long. <laughs> because you have to be pragmatic. Mm. You know, my first year in management at Crystal Palace, I always say it was the blind leading the blind because I was manager and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And my team at the time just weren't very good. But at the end of a game, it was the loneliest feeling ever for me because I'd be in the dressing room and the players would be wanting answers from me. And I had no answers. Mm. Blind leading the blind. The, the steepest learning curve I've ever had in football when I was given the manager's job. Mm. Well, before you got that, tell us about your England career. Yeah, well, I t when I first joined United, um, it was almost embarrassing international weeks because everyone would go off everywhere. And they'd usually be me and Alex Stepney. And, you know, for a year or so, it, it was sort of, you know, embarrassed laugh to each other and all this. And, and then, thankfully, I, I got selected to play. Ron Greenwood selected uh, me to join a squad. I'd been away on one squad with 
Don Revy. And I, I think it must have been the summer of 77 after the cup final. We went... Can you, a, can you remember the time he actually... How did he get in touch with you? Telephone or telegram? No, came or the club. Came through the club. Don Revy, the Don Revy tour. It was a summer tour. And we were playing Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay. It was like two-week tour. Where? In England? No, no, it was a, a, oh, okay. away. Yeah, we were playing oh, away, okay. yeah. yeah. Sorry, Sorry I, I should have made that plainer, but the, the, it was an away tour, and it was the summer Don Revy negotiated his deal with the Saudi Arabians. So we played in Argentina, and Don Revy wasn't there. And it, it was a whisper, oh, you know, private, he can't come. So nobody really asked the questions, and we're all thinking, oh, Les Cocker, who was the coach, took the team in Argentina. And I very much, I was the junior person on the trip and I thought, well, you know, I'm here to carry the bags yeah. and the kit bags and I'm not going to get, oh, I'm not going to get a game. It was Keegan, Shannon, Emily Hughes, oh. you know, big guns. And I, I, I was quite happy really to go away on the tour. And I trained hard. We went to Argentina then we went to Brazil. I trained at the Maracanã. I thought, this is sensational. And uh, after the Brazil game, and Revy turned off for the Brazil game, after the Brazil game, we were going to Uruguay. And at this stage, I, I seem to remember Emlyn Hughes saying he played 70-odd games that season. He was knackered. It was the end of the tour. It was pointless. It was a friendly. We played in Uruguay. Um, and... When we were training in Uruguay, Don Revy comes to me. He said, oh, Steve, he said, I've been really impressed with your attitude. He says, I'm going to give you your first cap. He says, you're not going to start, but I'm going to give you your first cap. So I thought, sensational. Can't believe this. I phoned my mum and dad, which was a difficult yeah, thing to do yeah. in those days. You know, it was two-minute delay on the line. And uh, we got to the game. And it was like in the 60,000-seater stadium, there must have been 2,000 people there. Didn't mean anything to the no. Uruguayans. And I'm thinking, brilliant, this means I'm going to get on early. So first half, you know, keep looking along the dugout. The game kicked off, and it was nil-nil from the first whistle. You yeah. knew it was going to be one of those games, two sides, not really bothered. Let's get this game over with. Let's go home. So... I'm thinking, fabulous, this is playing right into my hands here. I'm going to get me cap. Fabulous. Keep looking along the dugout. Revy's looking at the pitch, shouting. Half-time comes. All oh, right, here we go. I'll make sure I'm ready. He's bound to bring me on fairly soon. So 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the second half. Nothing's happening. I'm not getting the shout to go and warm up. So I thought, sod it, I'll get up anyway. And I literally was doing doggies in front of Don Revy on the bench. <laughs> Touching me toes, groin, you know, the, the talking groin exercise every player did in those days, stretching the groin. Um, I'm standing right in front of him and he's almost moving his head from side to side so he doesn't look at me. 15 minutes to go, I'm, surely he's going to throw me on now, a token shirt. 10 minutes to go. And then with five minutes to go, I thought, this ain't going to happen. So I, I sat back down. Final whistle went. The lads traipsed off. The bench was empty. I'm sitting there on the bench by myself looking at the ground. 
Don Revy comes over. He said, Steve, he said, oh, I'm so sorry about that. He said, the game was too important. So I'm thinking, it speaks volumes. It was that important. He felt he couldn't risk me yeah. for five minutes or two minutes or whatever. So important. He's just negotiated this deal to go to Saudi Arabia, taking the money. You know, England as such didn't mean a great deal to him yeah. because he was offski. So I literally just sat there for 15 minutes, even after he'd gone. And in those days, again, it was like a 30-hour trip to get home, yeah. you know, all kinds of stuff. Do you know the, um, the two games prior to that, the Brazil and Argentina? Who were the players playing for them? Oh, legends. Zico was, uh, Zico was the best player. We, we actually followed Brazil once. They were training, then we came on, mm-hmm. on the training pitch after them. And Zico was taking free kicks, and you, you were watching him take free kicks. You were thinking, "Oh my word! Let's mm. no, don't give any fouls away around the edge of the box." And he had legs like tree trunks. Yeah, he had. Uh, you know, said I can't remember all the players no, now, no. but Zico was the one. And uh, I thought that he was just unbelievable at the time. And just that the, there was something about, and even now to this day, there is something about the Brazilian team carries an aura. You know, yeah. you, you see the shirts and you think... Maradona, well, Maradona for Argentina? I played against Maradona, yeah. yeah same kind but of that wouldn't have been that tournament, no? No, no, no. no. He, he was many years later. Um, but it's funny talking about Zico because we played Brazil once at Wembley and Ray Wilkins was playing and I was playing and uh, for the last couple of minutes, I'm looking at Ray. I was like, Ray, what are you doing? He's man marking him. He said, I'm, I'm just keeping close to Zico. I said, what for? You're not marking him. He said, his shirt. I want his shirt at the end of the game. <laughs> and literally the final whistle went. Straight over. He was there. He was like glue. <laughs> he had Zico's shirt. Yeah. Well, which brings us on. I was going to actually ask you about shirt numbers. I was reading an article uh, with Brian Robson. Because of course you were number seven here. And he had come to you and asked if he could have number seven. And you said, yes, that's fine. As long as I get the number 11. That was what, (laughs) (laughs) is that not how you remember it? No, how I remember it. Well, it's similar to a certain extent. How I remember it was uh, a big Ron came to me and said, Robbo's coming, he's having number seven. (laughs) So uh, to be fair, like Robbo came and there was almost an element of suspicion about Robbo when he first came. You know, it was uh, it was almost as if you know Ron's favourite son as such. You know, and you've yeah, both coming first, from when West he first Brom come in, and, yeah, yeah you, you, there was a little bit of suspicion, but then when you saw him train and you realised he was a Rolls Royce, and the most important thing, he was one of the lads right from day one. You know, there was no airs and graces about him. He was so down to earth, still is so down to earth, and you think, yeah, and. I was prou- proud to wear the seven, but it didn't really bother me going elsewhere. I'd, I'd wore eight, I think, and 11 as well. It, you know, it didn't really bother me. When he was talking about shirt numbers, he said for him, it was obviously George Best had mm. the number seven here. But he said, I tell you what, some people don't seem to remember what a great player Stevie Koppel was. He was so complimentary and so have so many of our ex-players been so complimentary about you. But Brian then went on to obviously talk about the injury that you suffered. Mm. That was in 1982 against Hungary. I got the injury uh, 81 against mm-hmm. Hungary and it was a critical World Cup game. And um, we needed to win to qualify 
for the World Cup in 82 in Spain. We needed to beat Hungary at Wembley. And Paul Mariner scored. We were 1-0 up and we were sort of in control, but obviously 1-0, anything could happen. And I, I got the ball in the second half and I took on the full back and he, you know, he tackled me up, literally up by my knee. And uh, as soon as he tackled me, I, to this day, I say, it felt as if a firework went off my knee. And I sort of hobbled to the side of the pitch. I can't even remember whether I stayed on or not. But I remember I drove home that night. <laughs> it was your ACL, which... It was my ACL yeah. snapped, yeah. Yeah. But this was before arthroscopy, so nobody knew. So when I got back, Jim McGregor was a physio at United, and he looked at it and he said, oh, you know, we'll give it a few weeks, it'll be all right. And uh, I, at one stage, I had a decision to make, whether they sort of opened me up and had a look but then it was open up you know it was like a zip down the side of your leg it was a proper wasn't keyhole and I I thought do I really want to do this World Cup next year and you got to remember I'm I'm so proud of the record I hold here at United of the number of consecutive games the ultimate irony I went four years without missing a game and then I, had, I got injured at 26 and I had to retire at 28. So as such, I'd never really been injured. I'd done a hamstring once, I think. But apart from that, I'd never really been injured. So with the bad knee, I was running. I thought, well, I know it's not right, but I can still run because a straight line Because people can still yeah. continue in life without their ACL, really. Well, I've got no ACL now. It's yeah. not there. You know. Just on that record, I must I must put this out here in case people don't know. That record still stands today, of course. Won't be beaten. I think Schmeichel 200... was close at one stage. I think he got to 180 on Schmeichel. And I know well, for he an outfield player, I doubt yeah. that will be no, broken. Never, 207 appearances from 1977 to 1981. And yeah. that was consecutive. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. Not just that you were available for all of those games, but then that you obviously consistently selected for all of those games. Well, it wasn't a massive squad in those days. You got to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just... You know, I, I look back with immense pride on that now. I really do feel, and the fact that I don't think it will be beaten, I'm thinking, well, you know, I made my little mark in history and proud of it. So, yeah. But going back to the injury, I'd, I'd never really been injured. Never really knew. I decided not to have surgery beforehand. We nursed it for the rest of the season. Then I got selected for the squad. And then going back to numbers, would you know what number I wore in the World Cup? Not many people would. Number five. Do you know why? Good quiz question. It was number five because Ron Greenwood, the manager, gave the numbers out in alphabetical order. Unless you were Kevin Keegan and then you got seven. <laughs> so Kevin, who never played, he was injured for that, for that particular World Cup. Going into that World Cup, the year before, if we'd have gone to the World Cup, I think we would have won it because we were right at the top of our game. We had Kevin Keegan, who was European Player of the Year, two years running or something. We had Trevor, Trevor Brooking now, Sir Trevor, who would, those two were our most creative players. They were terrific. And uh, they were both injured for the World Cup. So 12 months previously, we'd have done great. Um, But when it came to the crunch, we were unbeaten in that World Cup. Mm -hmm. We only conceded one goal in the tournament. 
and we were thrown out at the sort of semi-final was stage. It Spain. We first group games we beat France three one. They were the only team to score against us. We beat uh, Qatar, Qatar, and someone else. We beat all three of them in the first group stage, and then they had another group stage. In that other group stage, we played Germany, and we played Spain. We drew with Germany, which was a bad result, because at the time, Germany were ready for the taking. We, they weren't strong, but we drew nil-nil. Germany then beat Spain, I think, 1-0, so we had to beat Spain 2-0. And the night before we played Spain, and we were quite confident of beating them, um, I my knee was swollen and it was painful and I decided because the game was so important to have a steroid injection um, and I had the steroid injection and the night before and that night when I went to bed I had a reaction to the steroid injection so I was vomiting and sweating and just feeling terrible and the decision ma- was made then I wouldn't be playing we drew that game nil-nil so we were out the World Cup, unbeaten, haven't conceded one goal. So strange Is that times. something you look back on and have real disappointment that... No, I, want, I wanted to play in the World Cup. You know, that was the big thing for me. And, you know, again, in looking at the build-up to that now, we stayed in Bilbao on what was affectionately known as Dead Dog Beach. You know, it wasn't a top-quality uh, hotel area. And um, uh, it was a real bond, you know, for the players. We had the hotel to ourselves and, you know, it was we were away for, I don't know, seven, eight weeks together. It was, and again, we were unbeaten. First night we played France, the first game in the tournament. It was 12 o'clock in the afternoon. It was 100 and odd degrees in the stadium when we kicked off. And our kit manufacturers were Admiral. Mm-hmm. And our first set of shirts, they they were like somebody had crocheted them. <laughs> and of course, as soon as they got wet, they weighed an absolute ton. I think Paul Manor lost 11 pounds in that first game. Wow. 11 wow. pounds in sweat. So, and then we, we sent out a, a, an emergency uh, message to Admiral saying we can't wear these shirts it's just impossible yeah. at the temperature and they then brought us up to the correct century with yeah. decent shirts <laughs> and uh, made life a little bit easier but it, they were still very very difficult conditions to play in but the way of the world then so at 26 you have your knee injury yeah and then for the next two years you play you play in a world cup what happens when you're 28 and you say i can't do this anymore well, it, it was a progression, really. Um, I had the injury. I came back. As soon as I came back, I was one of the first people in this country to have an arthroscopy operation. The doctor was a gentleman called David Dandy, who was based in Cambridge. And when I woke up from surgery, he says, um, he said to me, your ACL is still there but it's so lax, it's not doing anything. Now, later surgeries informed me that when I had the injury, the ACL must have snapped with such force, it wrapped itself around the PCL. Mm. 
So when doctors went in there, one end it was attached and it was really lax. And at the other end, it looked as if it was attached, but it was attached to the PCL. It was doing nothing. So he also said to me, he's quite proud of this. He said, you also have a tear in your meniscus, which is a David Dandy type two meniscal tear. As if that was something to be proud of. <laughs> but when I woke up again, I was 28 then. No, I was 26 then. And I just signed a five-year contract. And um, as I woke up and I was getting conscious, he said to me, um, Steve, he says, um, how long do you intend to be playing football for? I said, well, I've just signed a five-year contract. He said, hmm. <laughs> I thought then I, I might be in trouble. So I then came back, started playing, but it was very much play. It would swell up. I'd have to rest. Uh, I would play again. I'd occasionally miss games. I was always fighting it. And I knew it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't right, but I dragged it out. I had two more surgeries. I'd, on the third surgery, uh, a different surgeon then um, said to me, uh, he said, listen, if you want to play with your kids when you're 50 and you want to move around, he said, I advise you to pack in. I didn't take persuading. I, I just said, right, decision made. Wow. Was that difficult? Yeah, unbelievably difficult, I would say. Because um, you're in your prime, aren't you? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'd say I'd, I'd never reached my prime. Well, true, you know, yeah. yeah. You know, injured at 26, age, 28, mean, yeah. 29, yeah. you would say, is where mentally and physically sort of combine, you're at your best. And um, I got to to the being told and literally, I remember Ray was my, Ray Wilkins was mm -hmm. my roommate and I told him, and just floods of tears, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't cope with it then. But very quickly, I, I thought, well, before football came along, I'd probably wanted to be a teacher. So I thought, you know, if the worst comes to the worst, I can go and teach. So that's that's what happened, really. I had made the decision. I think I, the last operation was in September or something like that. I made the decision to retire. How was the club with you? Well, the doc got on the phone to me straight away. He said, listen... We'll do a testimonial within... He wasn't here then, by the way. But he said, we'll do a testimonial within seven days. And to be honest, I didn't really want a testimonial. No. I didn't want, you know, to a certain extent, nowadays in particular, I think it's unnecessary. You know, testimonials were started for people who had spent a career at a club 10, 15 years and not earned great money they devoted themselves and then the 30 odd when other people are climbing the career ladder, they're just starting again. People need a help or did mm. do now. And even then I, this was imprinted in my mind. I wasn't keen on doing it. He said, we'll get a testimonial within seven days. And he approached the club and no, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. So I'd got injured playing for England. So there was insurance things. And then, um, the club had insurance. United then, at that stage, were one of the few clubs who insured the players. So there was money coming in, I think, to the club, but not necessarily to me. And I had this five-year contract, and, you know, it, it, uh, Gordon Taylor at the PFA, 
uh, sort of um, stood my corner and and um, we ca- we came to an agreement but part of the agreement was um, a testimonial I said I don't want a testimonial but I had I think it was thirty thousand pound against whatever a testimonial would bring the testimonial never happened for like four years or whatever it was and I always remember um, I got a phone call from Dennis Roach, the agent. Yeah, Do you yeah. remember him? Yeah, he yeah. was allied with uh, Ron Ankinson. They were good pals. And uh, Dennis Roach phoned me up one day, like four years after the event. And by this time, I'm managing Palace. And uh, he said to me, he said, oh, uh, your testimonial's due. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, we can fit you in. Um, pre-season next year against Real Sociedad. I said, well, Real Sociedad doesn't really mean anything to me and I'm sure with the United fans it doesn't really mean a great deal but he was in with John Toshak. Toshak, he was manager of Real Sociedad at the time. So he said, put it this way, he said, if you don't take this you go to the back of the queue and you'll have to wait another four years. So I said, well, I I suppose I better take it then. (laughs) So I had a testimonial here. I think it must have been the lowest testimonial crowd ever. I think 13,000. Uh, a funny story, I have to tell you. Uh, he phoned me up about a month, six weeks before the game, Dennis Roach. And he says to me, uh, have you got gifts for the players? Because that's what you do with testimonials. Yeah. You give them gifts. You don't pay them. You give a, a memorial, not memorial, but a token gift, commemorate the uh, the game. So I said, no, no, I've got a couple of ideas, but I haven't really got an idea. He said, I can sort that out for you. I said, what have you, what have you got in mind? To this day, I was convinced he said Waterford Crystal. So I said to him, oh, brilliant, Waterford Crystal, yeah, I'll, I'll go for that. Keep the wives happy with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have the game and afterwards you have a meal with two teams and I get, I'm get i just about to go on the stage to make, say thank you to everyone, make a presentation to the players of both teams. And Dennis was there, he said, oh, I've got the, uh, the stuff and these big boxes are there. So I opened the top of one of the boxes, expecting to see Waterford Crystal. Crystal. Look at the box. Watford Crystal. <laughs> so I'm just Is about that to- famous? <laughs> that we don't know, no, right? <laughs> So up there, and Robbo was at the side of the stage leading on the United team, and he sees what for Crystal, and he just looks at me, he says, are you having a laugh or what? I said, no, Robbo, I've got to explain it. And I had to carry this through. I could see all the players looking at this. What for Crystal? eBay straight away. I wonder if anyone been. still has it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have thought. I, I certainly threw mine away, but but it was. Uh, I was to be honest, I was glad to get the game out of the way, and yeah. Can um, I just ask before you said you maybe hadn't reached your prime? Considering you're saying that you're still regarded as one of the best wingers that we've ever had at Manchester United, and fans still talk about that. Are you aware that still people still talk about you in that accolade? 
Well, I played in three finals. I thought it was the norm to play in a FA Cup final at United. Three first four years we played in three finals, and I still have at home the VHS of all those three finals. And to this day, I'm still saying, one day I'm going to have a look at them. I, I, I've never ever watched. I didn't think I played well in any of the finals. And even now, looking back at my career, it's almost as if it's somebody else. Mm. And just recently, I have to admit, I've been looking at a few of the big match revisited games. They're brilliant. And critiquing my own play, I'm sort of better than I thought I was, if you know what I mean. I look at myself and I think, oh, that was good what you did there. And again, it's like it's somebody else. You know, there is no real connection to it, but... I do things and the pitches then are the one thing that stand out. Yeah. You know, you couldn't pass the ball because the ball was bobbling all over the place. But we were quite good at that because, again, we used to train at the cliff. When I first joined United, I was expecting to see this magnificent training ground and it was one and a half pitches and on a daily basis, there'd be 60 odd people there training. We'd have, the first team group would have half a pitch to training every day. And there was just rolled mud. So we were quite good with the uh, the bubbly passes and all this. But, you know, I look back now and I I knew what I could do and I knew what I couldn't do. And I very quickly learned not to try what I couldn't do. And I, the, the thing I had, the doc always said to me, he said, listen, you just take the full back on. If you lose it nine times, it doesn't matter because the 10th you'll beat him, get across in with a score. So it was the mentality of keep on doing it, be persistent, be on it all the time. Don't be discouraged by failure. Whereas now you see so many people, you know, coaches and that jumping up and down on the line, going crazy if things don't There's happen. There's so much the way analysis now, though, uh, isn't it? Well, you say again, people analyze every sports science took over football many years ago. You know, I've had sports scientists say to me, "Oh, such and such can't train because he's in the." orange zone yeah. and you know he never slept well last night and mm. I'm thinking rubbish he's playing on Saturday he's training yeah. but Spawn Science took it over and now anal- the analysts you know the, there are squadrons of analysts at every club now mm-hmm. doing everything so who are your um, who are your toughest opponents uh, Derek Statham was always my toughest yeah. who was left back for West Brom um, you know I was quick I was short Doggies, you know, we used to train uh, again at the end of a warm up with Doc. We used to do six yard back, mm-hmm. 18 back, yeah. halfway back, full length back. I used to try and pride myself on winning that every day. Right. Doggies were my thing. I like yeah. doggies. So I do that all the time. And uh, Derek Statham was quicker than me, he was lower to the ground than me. Mm-hmm. And I, I I never felt as if I played well against him. Maybe one or two times I played okay against him. Um, Kenny Sanson, who was England number one at the time, or yeah. number three, uh, I always did well against him. Um, but Derek Statham was the one I always one. thought should have had loads more England caps and he didn't really get a sniff. Obviously, you've talked about all your FA Cup finals as a player, but now what would be great to hear about is your FA Cup final experience as a manager, incredibly young, leading out Crystal Palace against Manchester United. I'll also take a quick note to anybody listening that any moment now, some drinks might arrive. So if you hear that, that's what's happening. (laughs) 
Well, I suppose that season with Palace, we'd got promotion. It had taken me five years to get promotion at Palace, you know, going back to the blind lead and the blind story. It took me five years to get promotion with Palace. And that wouldn't happen now. You wouldn't get five years to get promotion. Um, so I, I was forever grateful for my boss, uh, Ron Nodes, who I had a so really good relationship over the years. Um, and that particular season, we'd gone into the first division wanting to survive. And I think it was round about the October. Lo and behold, we had Liverpool away. And I remember on the evening, I had taken 27 tickets for family, friends, everyone. It was the first time I had taken a team to Anfield. For me in particular, one proud moment. I thought, great. I thought we'd get beat, but I'm still well pleased to be going to Anfield as a manager, having stood in the terraces for many years. Kenny Dalglish, Liverpool team. We start off really well. We had a couple of one-on-ones with the keeper, didn't convert them, then they scored. My assistant manager at the time was Stan Turnant, who's well-known round Lancashire circles. He's worked for many, many clubs. My manager at Burnley. Yeah, Yeah, at Burnley for many years. He was my assistant manager. So, 1-0 down. 2-0 down. 3-0 down. I'm thinking, oh no. 4-0 down. 5-0 down. Somewhere around about the 5-6-0 era. And it looks as if we're getting a paste in we win a penalty. So I'm looking at it. It's at the Anfield Road end, not the cop end. Jeff Thomas, my captain, steps up to take the penalty. Stan Turner, my assistant manager, he grabs hold of me in the dugout by the arm. He says, you and me, he says, when this goes in, we're going to run onto the pitch and jump up and down. I said, you are joking. These things are pre-planned then? <laughs> well, this is his plan, not my plan. I said to him, you are joking. There's absolutely no chance. And then I think, sod it, come on, let's do it. So the, the two of us, if you know Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Cliff, kid, when they're going over the cliff in the film, the two of us are on our haunches, ready to go. Jeff Thomas steps up smashes this ball into row Z and the two of us just sit back down again oh, oh well forget about it we end up losing the game 9-0 so I'm thinking oh my word I had to see my mum after the game I'm thinking she's going to give me a in here but they were all very sympathetic but it was to be fair looking back it was embarrassing at the time but it it, it was a catalyst for change because my my boss, Ron Nodes, we had to do something. We signed the first million pound goalkeeper, Nigel Martin, who everyone said to me, you must have been panicking, million pounds on a goalkeeper. I said, no, I saw him that many times. It was blue chip. It was an investment. And he was brilliant for Palace. We signed other players who made us a force. And uh, the coffee's arriving. (laughs) 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 They made us... They made us a force as a team. And, and gradually, having looked like favourites to be relegated in our first year, we started climbing up the, the league table. And then in round about the February, we played Liverpool at home. And I thought this was a chance for redemption. 
And then we're 1-0 down, but it was close. We'd obviously improved a hell of a lot, and I thought we've got a chance of getting a result. 1-0 down, and then I go to make a substitution. One of my players, as I'm making the substitution, he goes down, rolls over a couple of times, and the physio says to me, oh, just wait, I'll check him. I said, ah, he's all right. I've seen him do this in training all the time. So I make the substitution, bring somebody else off while my player's getting treatment. The next minute, the physio's going... (laughs) (laughs) So we played the last 20 minutes of that game with 10 men, and it was my schoolboy error. As a coach, I was just that keen to get somebody on to try and make a difference to get a result. So we'd be beaten 2-0, and then we drew Liverpool in the semi-final at Villa Park and that day I think was one of the best days ever for FA Cup fo- football we played Liverpool and then Oldham I say, yeah. played United so that day there was what 12 goals mm. in the two games or 13 goals and uh, we beat Liverpool 4-3 to get to the final so as such we were justified you know, that our season was justified. We didn't get relegated and we were playing in the FA Cup final. For Palace to do that, it was just sensational. And uh, on the day, we led the team teams out and, you know, Fergie's there and I'm, I'm so proud. And Fergie has since spoke to me about this because it was obviously critical for him. Yeah, yeah. And when I made my debut for Tranmere many, many years before, it was in a pre pre-season game at East Sterling or Sterling Albion and it was Fergie's first game as a manager his first game as a manager was when I made my debut and that's when the, the general manager of Tranmere at the time said to Fergie so he plays some nice football but you'll never be successful playing like that <laughs> <laughs> what a premonition yeah. obviously so when we get to the final critical for him First trophy was against me. It was almost as if the wheel, yeah, yeah the, full turn, yeah. The, the circle was complete. Yeah. But the first game we played against Liverpool, a specific, we were man to man marking. We had a, uh, a spare player at the back, man to man marking. If we'd have played against Liverpool and it, you have the ball, we have the ball, we'd have been hammered again. So the way we played against them, we then transferred against United and it was very much man to man because United had match winners. I didn't. And I knew if we gave them free expression, we'd be beaten. And that that first game, again, was a sensational game. Mm. And to a certain extent, we were not far from winning it. But again, the match winners proved vital. The second game, I always feel hard done by because Fergie let it, you know, he he said, oh, they were dirty. They changed the tactics. They were dirty. You know, I think somebody said to me once that the foul count was 13 aside. Alan Pardew did one naughty challenge on the night. That was the only thing, but it coloured the game as far as Fergie was concerned. So I feel we 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 were sort of branded wrongly for that particular game. But again, for us to play in in two finals, as it were, was a sensation and for me personally I still have the suit I walked out in 
And I've always said, if, if Palace ever have a museum, I'll give it to them. <laughs> so it's still in my wardrobe. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, happy memory, even though we got beat. Happy it's so memory. funny to think of FA Cup final replays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Was it Saturday, Thursday as well? Saturday, Thursday. Saturday, Thursday. And the next morning we flew to um, Jamaica. We were, we'd were we already pre-booked an end-of-season tour to try and cash in on yeah. our newfound fame. You were a physical team though as well, weren't you? Well, like, we, strong did team. Did you must have we, played? I would have played again, I'm sure. But I remember right team Brighty up front. Yeah. Andy Gray midfield. Yeah. Um, Alan Pardew played Jeff um, Thomas was it Jeff Thomas yeah, yeah. centre backs Eric Young uh, Andy Thorne Nigel Martin the goalkeeper who I still maintain as one of the best around mm. and on Ian Wright you really discovered Ian Wright and gave him his opportunity and well I gave him the opportunity um, when when I started the Crystal Palace we had no money so I made the decision. We would make our training ground open to all the local non-league managers. We'd say to them, come on in, have a cup of tea, watch training, you know, ask us questions, whatever. So we would have local non-league managers come in. And of course, they're asking us questions and I'd be saying to them, this is the best play I've seen recently. And there was one particular manager who managed Carl Shelton and Dulwich and loads of local non-league teams called Billy Smith. And he came in one day and he said, uh, oh, pre-season this was. He says, oh, we've just had a kid start training with us. He said, he's terrific. I said, how old is he? He said, 21. He might be 22. I said, has he been with anyone? He said, no, no, not from what I've been told. And I'm thinking, I've heard this so many times yeah, yeah. before. So many people say, oh, this fellow's 24 and he's great. And, what yeah. have you. and I'm thinking, 21, 22. He said... We're having training Tuesdays and Thursdays. He said, come along, go send somebody along. So I sent somebody along to watch training. He came back. He said, oh, something a little bit different about this kid. So we invited him in for three days training. And he came in and I'm looking at him train. I'm thinking left foot, terrific. Right Mm -hmm. foot, terrific. In the air, exceptional for his size aggressive, hungry, fast. I'm thinking, what's the flaw? What is wrong with this kid? (laughs) After three days, I phoned my chairman up and I said, listen, we have to sign this kid. I said, this is going to sound stupid, but this kid's got the ability to play for England. And from there, eventually he did. Was right to work in then? Well, he was always vague. He said he had some kind of labouring job (laughs) or whatever. You know, he was, uh, I couldn't imagine him Labouring, no. Like Ian's got a real sort of side to him, you know. He he can he can be a little bit. Uh, uh, well, then he was a little bit spoiled British. For the first year, he was sub. He was known as super sub. Mm-hmm. He'd knock on my door every morning. Why aren't I playing? Why aren't I, why aren't I in the team? And I would say to him, because you don't understand football. And he didn't understand football. Give him the ball, and he beat three men and try and score and look brilliant. But when he didn't have the ball, he didn't understand what to do. He had a temper. He'd get frustrated and booked and this, that and the other. But the raw talent. you know, The best thing that happened to Ian Wright was Mark Bright came. I signed Mark Bright. I'll tell you a funny thing about that. I signed Mark Bright. 
And um, Brighty taught Ian Wright how to be a professional footballer. Because after training, Brighty would stay behind, shooting, finishing, perfecting his control. And Ricey's not stupid. He saw him doing this and then he joined in. The two of them would stay behind and do extras. But when I signed Brighty, I thought, oh, this just sounds good, doesn't it? Right and bright. It's, yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. And we played Oldham or somewhere like this. And I, I phoned Martin Bucking. I said to him, man, I said, come and watch us play when we play Oldham. Just give him an opinion on the two lads I've got up front. I said, I'm quite excited about them. So after the game, he says to me, yeah, I'm going to tell you something. And this was typical Martin. He said, uh, you'll remember this. And I have obviously remembered. He said, watching the game, he said, I'm going to say, right's not bright and bright's not right. <laughs> and that more or less summed up what they were at. They were, yeah. you know, at that particular yeah, time. Yeah. They, they got very savvy uh, very quickly after yeah. that. But at that particular time, and that was a typical Martin thing, Peter Perfect. Um, we are running out of time, excuse the pun, because your son is hopefully going to finish the marathon very soon. We don't have time to go through all of the clubs that you have managed. But this is just speaking from my personal experience. Listen to you talk. You seem like you've been a real pioneer for football and management through your career. Do you feel that way? Uh, well, when I was a player, I was chairman of the PFA. And then for a short period, I was uh, chief executive of the League Managers Association. So I've always been, you know, I, I feel, you know, just in life, the stronger should look after the weaker. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's Fergie's theme as well, you mm -hmm. know. And he has been magnificent with the Managers Association over the years. You know, in terms of um, football management, my own particular style, I knew early on that uh, I didn't know a great deal. So I had, a, I had a thirst to learn about management and football styles. And that took me to long ball theory, studying long ball theory, wing commander, uh, reap. Uh, and at the time when I first started coaching, it was very much the Charles Hughes theory, 80% of goals are scored in three passes or less. And it, it, I don't know what the analysis is now, but I was one of the pioneers of analysis, even though I'm critical of it now, over analysis. You basically started VAR as how I'm going to go. Well, <laughs> I'm happy with VAR. One of the few people I think it's an improvement to our game. Not, not in the way it's implemented, but certainly the, the, the conclusion of it is the right thing. The right thing is the right thing. And I was brought up on the referee is right, even when he's wrong. Mm. But I think now with technology, we've got to take advantage of it and make it. But, but, you know, I do and have, I think, worked hard to be the best that I could be. Mm -hmm. And it took me, you know, I eventually managed over a thousand games. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm well pleased with that. Manager of the year twice. Manager of the year twice, yeah. yeah. Reading. Yeah. Is there another football chapter in Steve Koppel? I, I would like to think, but I'll probably best answer this by saying I went to watch England at Wembley against Switzerland last week and uh, I got the tube there and the tube was absolutely packed. You're literally standing yeah. like that. And 
sat in front of me was a gentleman who I thought was roughly my age. And as we're going towards Wembley Park, after about four or five steps, or stops rather, he gets up and asks whether I want to sit down. And I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, you're the same age as me, what are you saying that for? Maybe he knew who you were and knew about your knee. <laughs> well, I can but hope, but I have the feeling it was a reference to my uh, uh, age. Because it just said, seems to me, the knowledge you have, the know-how you have, there's still something out there that somebody would grasp with both hands because of the knowledge and you know our football. Well, I did three years at the end in coaching in India and I really enjoyed that. There were times of it you don't enjoy, but yeah. all in all, it was the ultimate challenge. I saw a country and bemused how it works. 1.2 billion people, how does it work? And it does work. And I think I would love to be... Um, I, I've mentored a couple of young managers, but COVID sort of put an end to that. And I en really enjoyed that connection. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you said to me now, what would you really like to do? I'd like to go to some obscure country somewhere in the world who are um, progressing through the infancy of football yeah. and do something there, mm -hmm. you know, as a as a education of life, as a part of life, a life experience which would be memorable. Do I really want to go up and down the motorways of this country anymore? No. no. But I would like to help maybe a few younger managers. The longevity of managers is, you know, you've got no chance. Again, referring back to 70 odd clubs, you've got absolutely no chance because mm -hmm. the environment is not right. You are waiting to be sacked so that the owner can bring a new manager in, the new flavour of the month. And I think sometimes... Recruitment is everything in football, whether it be players or the management staff. And I, I think sometimes I could help a lot of clubs make some very expensive, stupid errors by employing the wrong people. Steve, it's been illuminating talking to you. It's been Thank so much fun. Much. And Thank I, you. I think I'm only sorry that we have to end it. But... Uh, hopefully you can get yourself to the finish line. <laughs> well, I hope so too. And, and thank you for making me so welcome. It's brilliant to come back. You know, I don't come back. I think the last time I came back to United was uh, when I brought a team here. So it was a long time what? ago. But wow. It's, uh, How did we not ask that question at yeah. the very start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, I came back to do yeah. an ambassador appearance. And it, uh, it's just not my thing, I'm afraid. So yeah. uh, I did it once and that's it. But... You know, I love coming back here. I don't think, it, well, I definitely haven't. I've got two boys. I haven't brought either of the boys here. So I, I will do it one day if I can scrounge your ticket off somewhere. Do you have a look now? Obviously, I know today's the, the yeah. day after. We came out the in Leicester the middle. Game. We yeah. always came out in the middle, which I always think is the best thing in yeah. a football stadium. You've got to come out in the middle, not the corner. For a manager, when you're not doing well, to make that walk from the so middle to right, the corner yeah. must be purgatory. But do you look at it now and think, wow, I've been so lucky to grace that perch well, stadium? When I played, it was symmetrical. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. in the oval, as it were. Yeah. And the standing, I thought the standing was brilliant. Yeah. You know, I still think there is room, room in our modern society to have standing at football stadiums. Um. Is there any particular game you look back at Old Trafford and go, wow, that was something special? I'll tell you one of the most, um, the games, one of the games that possibly affected me most. Uh, you, you, you probably sense this in the dressing room that 
taking penalties. Mm-hmm. You know, someone takes penalties and then they miss one and then it goes to somebody else. And then you're in the dressing room and you're sitting and looking around and think, oh my word, it's probably my turn. So at one stage, you know, I thought, I've got to hold my hand up here and yeah. put myself forward for taking a penalty. My first penalty was against Tottenham with Ray Clemens, England's number one in goal at the Stratford end. And to be honest, I'd sort of put my hand up without having practice penalties as such. You know, you always do on yeah, a Tuesday yeah, morning yeah. when there's no one there and you're brilliant. Yeah. You never miss one. And all of a sudden, penalty and Clemson, and he's looking at me and he's laughing. He's And he was always on his toes and he got big on the goal line. And I'm thinking, oh my word, what am I going to do here? So I ran up, heart beating out my chest. I ran up and I almost miskicked it. I wanted to put it to his right. So mm-hmm. I was yeah. cutting across it a bit. I almost miskicked it and it sort of bobbled its way. He dived and it bobbled over his hand. <laughs> it went in. I thought, oh, thank heaven. And from then onwards, I used to practice with Gary Bailey. I'd, I'd do 10 after every training session. I'd say, right, my next pen is going to the goalkeeper's left, whoever it is, whenever yeah. it is. Don't go early, see if he can stop it. And I used to hit it with such force that it was very difficult to stop. And my next penalty was Peter Shilton. It was also co-England's number one. But I drilled that one okay. So uh, another record that I hold is I eventually took the massive total of four penalties and never missed one. So <laughs> there I go. So that that but that game, I must admit, standing there in front of the Stratford End, the expectation was yeah. penalties are easy. You're going to yeah. score. And I'm looking at Ray Clements and he's laughing at me. And, <laughs> and luckily, it went in. Well, before you get to that marathon, get yourself down in the pitch and take a wee photo of yourself on the, <laughs> on the wing, put it in our memory box with the suit and the, the well, videotapes. Again, going back, 60-odd thousand at Old Trafford. If you're having a bad game, you know, usually a good game, it's just one noise. If you're having a bad game, you can hear someone say, couple, shift your backside, you're doing nothing, you're rubbish, what are you doing? Call that across. But the noise is... Just, you know, it, it was many, many happy years. Very, very grateful to have been part of it. And it's good to see grass on it, actually. I didn't know yeah. it was grass on the old Trevor <laughs> bit. I played for that long when it was just, just brown. <laughs> it was brown. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much. You're yes, very thank welcome. You. That's fantastic. Thank you for inviting me. Thank Great. you so much. Cheers. Guys, what do you think of that? Unbelievable. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Brilliant. Well, I like he's... He was just captivating. And there's, there's so much we listened to and so much we talked about. And still, and there's probably bits that people would be annoyed about, so much we didn't. Like, I've desperately wanted to know about his time managing City. He was only there for 33 days, but there's only so long we can hold him down. And, and Reading, where he did yeah. incredible things. Because, yeah. I mean, he wants to go and see his son finish cross the finish line for the marathon. But also, he, you know, he has a life to live. He can't spend forever talking to us. But what an amazing two hours. Yeah. Brilliant. So good. So many good stories. So many good stories. And he remembered them all in su- with, with such detail. Yeah. So then as he told them, because often I think when we talk to people, sometimes they're sort of remembering on the spot. But he seems to just know everything in such clarity. I like podcasts. I like listening to people when they just keep you hanging on. Mm. So good. Yeah. Do you know what one of my favourite parts was? When he talked about Sir Matt Busby. Oh, that was amazing. Wow. 
the, do you mean not the, the not the smoking stuff, but the stuff of looking at his face and landing at Munich? Oh, that as, that well, as well. Yeah, that was extraordinary. Or just sat on the back of a plane with a pipe. Yeah, yeah. No, I can't get my head around that. Oh either. my god! <laughs> You're expecting him to be up front where you know the business class or first class is, but no. So Matt's at the back smoking his pipe. I think it says a lot about the kind of person he is that he went up to Samat afterwards and said, are you okay? Because I think a lot of people was certainly like the bravery even to go and sit with Samat Bosby mm-hmm. in the plane. Some people would have been so intimidated mm-hmm. and so nervous and, and not done it. But yeah, I loved, I loved hearing that story. There were mm-hmm. so many stories I loved hearing. That was such a really poignant thing, wasn't it though? When yeah. he said it about landing, you know, two foot of snow and what's mm-hmm. going through his mind. I mean, when, whenever um, Sir Bobby used to travel with the first team, I used to think the similar things, you know, what's going through his mind, having been through an unbelievable experience of Munich. It's like, wow. Yeah, it was an, wow. it was an incredible story. So, yeah. His debut story was amazing. To say what it made me think of, it made me think of Cristiano Ronaldo's first debut in a game where we were, not a lot was happening and he came off the bench with maybe half an hour to go and all of a sudden we won 4-0. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounded like he just didn't necessarily want too much pressure on him and turned the whole game around. Yeah. The stuff about um, playing for England, and I mean, I didn't know this, being in the World Cup and not losing a game, conceding one goal and being knocked out. I know. It's yeah. really bizarre, isn't it? And he did that without an ACL. I know. It's just extraordinary. Will his record of consecutive games ever be beaten at this club? He doesn't think so. 204 games. 207. 207, yeah. sorry. I, I think he's right. I don't think it will be. Partly because, as he alluded to, the, the, the idea of squads now is in the League Cup, you make wholesale changes for the most yeah. part. Or in an FA Cup match, you might do because you give players rest and you give them time off. And you also want to, because you have a bigger squad, you want to play yeah. other players. I don't think that'll ever be broken. No. Particularly, particularly at this club. You know, maybe at other clubs you could get a player making 200 appearances as a goalkeeper because, you know, they're knocked out of the Cups or whatever it is. But at Manchester United, that's, mm-hmm. as he said, that, I no, it won't. It won't get beaten. And no I liked the way he said he was really, really proud of that. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to hear mm-hmm. when people say that. I just loved the whole podcast. I thought it was, it was absolutely fantastic. And, his, and his record as well, four panels. Not four. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought a, a Liverpool fan could give us such a great podcast? <laughs> Imagine being in, you know, coming from Liverpool and you're actually at a Liverpool University, play for Manchester United, and nobody bothers you. I know. His whole story. Imagine that now. It's like. Just won't happen. Yeah. Playing for play, playing for Manchester United and training by himself because he's finishing his degree in economics is an extraordinary thing. Brilliant. Unbelievable. Great, yeah. great, great podcast. I would put that in the oh, top. Oh, here we go. In the top five. <laughs> the top 30. Aren't they all? <laughs> because right. we've done loud on let's, let's see what other people Fantastic. think. Fantastic. Okay. Lee Bolton said, just like to say, I really enjoyed listening to Ben's podcast. He's referring to Ben Foster. I'm from Manchester and I remember a couple of seasons ago, Ben came to Old Trafford with Watford and he got a great reception. But also I think a young girl in the crowd was struck with a ball and he gave her that ball and also the gloves he was wearing after that game. I remember that game actually. Class guy, I love his podcast too. I remember having Foster on my shirt when he was with us I thought he would make it just like I think with Dean Henderson now funny how hearing his views on being at Old Trafford that was a good podcast yeah it was really good I didn't realise he didn't have any any shoes on I watched it back the other day he didn't oh my goodness yeah Yeah. I thought that and then I was like he told told me it's because it gets really hot yeah he's there with his flip flops 
And he's just Bethy. Yeah. Um, also, Good just going back to this email, he talks about, obviously, Ben Watford. What for Crystal? Just thought about that. Was funny too. <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, Tommy Dickens has sent us an email. He says, hi guys, big fan of the podcast. Listen to it. Uh, the day it comes out every week. Thanks, Tommy. We need, and the need is in capital letters, Mr. Evans on by far the worst mistake United have made letting a player go in the last 10 years. Helen, you've got to make it happen. We need to hear Johnny's story. And then, if not, can we get Carlos Kiros on? Thanks for the good podcasts, Tommy. So Helen, can you get Johnny? And if not, Carlos Kiros. Yeah. That's a, that's a confirmation. That's the closest we've ever had to her actually saying she's going to get Johnny on. <laughs> Robs and Hannah Murray. Oh, they share an email address. I like that. They say, any chance of McClare, Ronnie Johnson, or Mark Robbins? Cheers. Short and sweet. Love that. Well, we've had Ronnie on. Yeah. Yep. Mark Robbins is in the pipeline. I'm not sure about Chucky. It's a good Honest option. assessment. Um, I think that's it, guys. That's it. That's another week in the podcasting world for, uh, for us, three. Thank you very much. And we will see you next time. If you want to send us an email, you can. It's unitedpodcast.mayunited.co.uk. And we'll see you on the next one. See you later, troops. Bye. Bye.